Well, I don't know about you, but I'm sure going to miss those voices. We sent them off with our blessing today, and a little bit later we're going to pray over them as they begin their new ministry in Kansas City with Legacy Christian Church. We're going to try to tackle this subject of living to please God. Now, I'm a people pleaser. I'm one of these people that if I've upset you, it's going to bother me more that you're upset with me than you're probably upset yourself. And in fact, sometimes as people pleasers, we try to please people to the extent of, you know, just sacrificing everything to try to make somebody happy. And if you're one of those people pleasers today, I think you're going to really have a a valuable insight today on what it takes to please God. Let me tell you the story of Keith Hernandez. Keith Hernandez is a remarkable story. In, in fact, he's one of Major League Baseball's greatest players of all times. He was a lifetime 300 hitter, which if you know anything about stats, that's incredible. 11 consecutive gold gloves. He won a batting crown. Two World Series titles. He won the most valuable player of the World Series and also the league. But the one thing that he wanted more than anything else was the approval of his father and just to please his dad and make his dad happy. And after one game that he did really well, but I mean, he wasn't perfect. Nobody is perfect. And he said, Dad, how'd I do today? He goes, well, you struck out once and you could have done this a little bit different. And he said, Dad, why can't you just tell me good job? I'm proud of you. He said, I'm a lifetime 300 hitter. 11 gold gloves, two World Series, batting crowns, you know, two MVPs. What more can I do? And his dad said, one day, son, you're going to look back at your life and say, you could have done more. Now, if you're a people pleaser, you may be trying to please somebody that is absolutely unpleasable. It might be your spouse, a boss, might be a friend, a coworker might be your parents, but if you try to live up to please the expectations of others, you're always going to come up short. But friends, we are called as Christians to please an audience of one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen? And so I want us today to move beyond pleasing people to start living to please the Lord. And so if you're a people pleaser like me, This is going to be a very personal sermon for you. But I think if you will apply these principles that we find in Scripture, will absolutely transform your life and make, uh, it'll just be an incredible difference. So how do we do that? How do we live our life to please the Lord? Well, fortunately, Scripture gives us a roadmap of that and it tells an exact plan to follow. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll begin reading with verse 1. And here in verse 1, we find that pleasing the Lord is an achievable goal. And then the rest of this passage tells us how we should go about doing it. Finally then, brothers, as we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For though you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. And in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see, we find out how to please the Lord, that it is a possible goal, and then how to go about doing it. The first thing that we're instructed here by the Apostle Paul to do is to live our life with moral purity. Now, I want you to know moral purity is God's idea and standard. It's not man's. And in verse 2, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that moral purity is an instruction by the Lord Jesus himself. And in verse 3, he says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means to be set apart or to be special, to be made holy. And he issues this call for us to live our life in moral purity. Well, maintaining moral purity is God's idea. It was his eternal standard for us. But you know, in today's anything-goes society, we are taught anything but moral purity. In fact, it's viewed as it's outdated, it's old-fashioned, it's irrelevant, unrealistic even. But I want you to know it was God's idea. It's His eternal idea, and that ought to be reason sufficient enough for us to try to attain it. Parents, sometimes... You know what it's like when you go to correct your kids and they ask you, why do I have to obey? Or why do I have to do that? And normally we'll try to impress them with some kind of wisdom like, well, you know, I've lived longer than you have and so I know better and I'm looking out for your best interest and, you know, we try to reason with them and, and then they normally will try to argue back and then finally you end up saying, what? Because I'm the parent. That's it. That settles it. If you want to make me happy, you're going to have to obey me. You're going to have to do what I ask you to do. So that settles it. If we want to please the Lord, we have to obey Him and say, okay, that settles it. First choice you have to make to maintain moral purity is that I'm going to avoid sexual immorality. Now, verse 3 says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That word abstain means to give up or to do without. But the NIV version says that we should avoid. That means to run, to flee, to get away from. Now, something I discovered this week with one of our church members, we were talking about the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And we knew that there were two trees in, in the Garden of Eden, the tree that they were special trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then the, the tree of life. The tree of knowledge and good and evil, they were forbidden to eat from that. 
And then a little bit later, we see when Satan is trying to, to tempt Eve, she said, we can't eat from this. We're, we're forbidden from eating from this. But this is what got me. And I know I've read this maybe many, many times, but it says we are not even supposed to touch it. That means we're not even supposed to get that close to sin to even reach out our arm and to touch it, not to go up and admire the tree. Oh, this is a beautiful tree. Look at, look at this. Uh, on, in the fruit. Oh, boy, I'd like to eat one of this. The Bible says don't even touch it. And we see when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife, she turned around after God said, get out of there. Don't even look. Just, just go. Flee. Abstain. Just get away. And she turned around and looked back. And I don't think she was looking back to see what was going to happen. It was a magnificent sight to see fire and brimstone fall from God. But I think she turned around and looked back with regret at what she was giving up. Man, that was a fun place to live, wasn't it? Yeah, there was some evil, wicked things that were going on there, but wow, wasn't it fun? See, we're required to make a choice. That means to live our life with moral purity means we have to flee, to run, to get away from any activity that somewhere or another contributes or tempts you to moral impurity. That means that you have to make a a choice and a decision that I'm not going to get close, I'm not going to engage in any sexual immorality of any kind, including entertainment. I'm not going to look at any websites, magazines, books, movies, anything that glorifies sexual impurity. I'm not even going to get close to it. Second choice that we have to make to maintain moral purity is that I will control my own body. Verse 4 here says, every Christian should learn to control his own body. That word to control means to dominate, to master, to control. And so this means that you have to to learn to master and manage your physical desires and impulses. That means we have to be in control of ourselves. And I think it, it is more than just controlling our sexual urges. It means taking control of your entire body. Now, parents, you probably have experienced this with your, with your kids. There goes through a time period when the kids are, are growing up. And some of you guys might be in that, that time period now where you're almost like an invalian alien invades your body and you can't walk without stumbling and falling down and just you know they go through these growth changes and spurts and things like that and they just are are, they're just all over the place they really don't control their own bodies the apostle paul says we have got to control our body that includes our habits our language our desires our thoughts anything about our body, we have got to control. That means you have to make a choice to control it. Third choice is to maintain moral purity is that I will not misuse another person for my own sexual pleasure. Now, verse 6 says, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Now, this word brother here isn't meaning just brothers within the church. This is a generic brother, meaning mankind, that you should not take advantage of mankind sexually for your own sexual pleasure. That means that you're not to abuse, to take advantage of, not to just use them for your own personal gain. 
Well, what's that include? I think it includes a lot of things. Adultery, pornography, prostitution, any type of sexual impurity. And listen to this, even including unmarried sex or premarital sex. God says it's wrong. According to Focus on the Family, the number one problem that we are facing in the church as far as sin is pornography addiction. Pornography addiction. And unfortunately, it's not just men. Many women are getting tangled up in the web of uh, Satan's web of pornography. And I'm often asked, why is looking at pornography wrong? I mean, you're just looking at something, right? I mean, after all, these women post their pictures on the internet and stuff, and they want you to look at it. So we're just doing what they really want us to do. That's how they make their living or whatever. My answer is very simple. You're taking advantage of someone else. I was asked by a mom a couple of years ago if she would talk to, if I would talk to her two teenage sons that she had found pornography pictures on their cell phones. And she said, would, would you talk to them? I really don't know what to say to them. I said, sure, I'll be glad to. So I sent them down and, and I said, listen, I know you guys have got a sister, don't you? Yeah. I said, oh, you're older than your sister. Are you pretty protective of her? Well, yeah, yeah. What if somebody tried to hurt or harm your sister? Oh, we defend her. I said, how would it make you feel if somebody got some images, some pictures of your naked sister or your mom, and they put them all over the internet for other people to see, and people were pleasuring their self to the image of your mom or your sister? Oh, we'd be furious. I said, do you realize that when you look at these pictures, there's somebody's mom, sister, somebody's daughter, and you're taking advantage of her. So that's why it's wrong. You're taking advantage of somebody, even if you don't know them, even if they don't know it. They might be confused. They might be desperate. They might be in financial bondage, and this is their hope to get out of that. And you're taking advantage of that person for your own selfish gratification. I want to tell you, moral impurity has a high price. Both physically and spiritually, there is a high price to be paid for moral impurity. There are two warnings in this passage that describes the high cost of moral impurity. Verse 6 here, the English standard says, the Lord is an avenger. The New International says the Lord will punish men for all such sins. So that word translated punish or avenge doesn't mean to take personal vengeance or a personal vendetta against somebody. But it's more of a natural consequence of the punishment of our sin. And there's always natural consequences. Those of us that uh, have been in ministry any length of time have seen the consequence of sin and moral impurity. I personally have listened to the story of more wives than I care to count that have shared their story, how their husband's internet pornography has made them feel degraded, devalued, demoralized, victimized. And it always ends up causing problems within their marriage. Sometimes there's a sexual dysfunction And just because there's not immediate visible 
punishment doesn't mean that that person has escaped judgment from God. The second warning is in verse 8. He who rejects or disregards this instruction does not reject man but God. So this word reject means to cast out, to discard. It's kind of like what we do with our garbage, our trash. We, We discard. Another version said to more or less disinherit. Kind of like disown from your family that you're not going to claim that person anymore. So if we reject or disregard the instruction, we're not disregarding each other, but we are actually rejecting or disowning our Lord. Second lesson I want us to see here in this passage is Living to please the Lord requires loving other Christians. You see, God is love, and He has always taught love. And in verse 9 and 10, Paul reminds the Thessalonians there that they have been taught by God to love each other. And yeah, that was something they were already doing. They were already loving each other, and it said, good job. I want you to keep doing it, but even do it more. What you're doing is great, but I want you to even do it more. You know, I don't think it's difficult to love the Christians that I can pick and choose who I want to love. But we've got to be honest. Sometimes there are some Christians that are really tough to love or to even like. But the Lord says, we've got to love these people. We've got to love these brothers. Verse 10 says, love all the brothers. That means that we have to love Christians of a different race or a different nationality. And we tend to kind of love them as long as we can kind of keep them at a distance. But you really can't love people if you don't have a relationship with them. So if we're going to follow the instruction, that means we've got to actually connect with these people. We've got to form a relationship and love these brothers and sisters even from a different country or a different nationality. Or maybe they speak a different language. We also have to love other Christians from a different social economic status than we are you know here in our society we have poor people and rich people middle class and then we even got the the mega rich well in christianity we don't have really really poor christians and you're a super mega rich christian you're just a christian being a christian doesn't have anything to do with your financial status and sadly sometimes there's even prejudice inside the church based on the financial status of somebody. We also have to love people who differ with us politically. I see what happens on Facebook and in the news. I see the wars that go on. I got into a long discussion about 30 minutes with a relative this week that I was trying to convince him to see my point of view And he was trying to convince me to see his point of view. And I think we both ended up, after a 30-minute conversation, really frustrated. If you're waiting for a political party to save you and to to save this country, it's not going to happen. I don't believe either one of our two major political parties are acting very Christ-like. In fact, most of the time they act pretty childlike. Political party is not going to save this country. It's only when we as a people and when we as a church and as Christians begin first to humble ourselves before God 
and acknowledge that He's Lord and He's our sovereign Savior, that's the only hope that we have. And so we have to learn to love each other regardless of their political opinion. And we also have to, to learn to love each other, Christians that differ theologically with us. I'm never going to compromise the message of the gospel. I'm never going to compromise my view of salvation. But I want to tell you, there are a lot of churches that we can have fellowship with that we may not agree with every single issue doctrinally or theologically, but we don't have to make everything a test of fellowship. I can still have fellowship with those brothers and sisters even if I disagree with them theologically. And we have to learn to love these people. And if we can't learn to love them now, guess what? We might be miserable in heaven because I'm pretty sure some of those people are going to be there. Third lesson I want us to see today is living to please the Lord requires working responsibly at your job. Verse 11 instructs us to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs. Now, really, I think this could be translated just mind your own business. Remember what kids used to always say? Mind your own beeswax. Mind your own business. Work hard with your hands. Be a productive citizen. Just do what's asked of you. And then verse 12 says, so that your daily life will is going to win the respect of outside people. I heard recently about a Christian personnel manager that really didn't want to hire Christian people because in her company, they did not have a good reputation. They weren't known to be good workers. I tell you what, that embarrasses me. As Christians, we ought to be the best employees. We ought to be exemplary employees. They, will, they should want to hire Christians because they know they're going to get a good day's work. They're going to mind their own business. They're going to show up on time. They're not going to take advantage of, of you know, break times or leave early and slough off. They ought to be the best employees. So the Bible tells us to be great employees and that to work hard and earn these people's respect. And then you're going to be able to witness them. But unfortunately... We may have already ruined our witness with that person just by our lazy work habits. Apostle Paul says, you want to please the Lord? You work hard. Have good work habits. You see, if we do these things, we can live to please the Lord. It's an attainable goal. He's not somebody that we'll never make happy. He told us what we can do to make Him happy. When we maintain moral purity, when we love others, and then we work responsibly and we provide for ourselves. I was reading uh, Guinness Book of Records this week, and I came across a bizarre story. It's not quite two years old, but this person made made it into the Guinness Book of World's Record by, in January 30th, 19, or 2017, by putting, listen to this, 21 scorpions in his mouth. Now, I don't know how desperate you are to get your name in a, in a book, but to put 21 scorpions in your mouth, now, scorpions sting you. Some certain types of scorpions will kill you. 
and to put 21 of them in your mouth. Sooner or later, you mess with these scorpions, you're going to get stung. And then I kept reading in that same page about a lady that several years before that made it in the, the record book by living in a room 33 days with 6,000 scorpions. Why? Why would someone want to mess with scorpions knowing that they're going to sting you? Sooner or later, around that many scorpions, you're going to get stung. And she was. Fortunately, she didn't die. The Bible talks about the pleasures of sin for a season in Hebrews 11.25. You see, sin is fun for a short period of time, but it always has a consequence. And James 1, verse 15 says, Sin, when it is full-blown, give birth to death. Why in the world would anyone want to play around with something that would cause you death? And I thought about this. I wonder if Eve would have known that, okay, here are the consequences of you taking that apple or the fruit. We, we, we always say it's an apple, but a piece of fruit and eating it and giving it to your husband that it's going to cost you to be driven from the garden. You're going to have to work hard. You're going to have a lot of pain in childbirth now. And you're going to die. You're not going to live forever. I wonder if they'd have known that, if they'd have went ahead and ate. And you're going to actually experience the pain of your two sons fighting and one of them murdering the other one. Can you imagine the pain of a parent of having a child murder another child? If they'd have known that, would they have still done it? Would it have been worth it? Sin is never worth it, no matter how fun it is. No matter how pleasurable those few moments of pleasure are, it is not worth it. You play with a scorpion long enough, you're going to get stung. If you play with sin long enough, it's going to lead to destruction. There's always a punishment. Maybe you've been playing with sin for a long time, but I want to encourage you to, to start living your life to please the Lord. Lord, as we have examined the Scripture today, it's my desire that anyone here that has been challenged to by the words that we've read today maybe they've been trying to please other people and they just need to focus on pleasing you and Lord pleasing you is an attainable goal and I pray that if there's someone here that is tangled up in sin been playing with snakes and scorpions and poisonous things that Lord they're going to say Lord I want to follow you Today's the day of salvation. Today is the day that they are set free. In Jesus' name, amen.